every packet's a surprise. They're stateless. They have no memory in, in that sense. They're not trying to sort of allocate their resources. In a true datagram switching algorithm you know, network, every packet is kind of unplanned for and you do your best. And, and the corollary is if you haven't got room, you haven't got space, you aren't ready, you just drop it because the computer at the other end will send it again. So with every packet a surprise, then there is no such planning. There's no such communication. You could go this fast. The computers at either end have no idea. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, I'm talking to Jeff Houston from APNIC Labs in his regular monthly spot on Ping. Jeff and I had a discussion about buffers in switches and routers and the effect of the delay bandwidth product on TCP behavior. Although you might think more buffers must be better, it turns out in end-to-end -end flow control, that's not always the case. Jeff, welcome back to Ping. George, g'day, how are you? I'm doing well. What should we talk about this time? I want to talk about memory and, and not my fading memory. Let's not talk about that. Let's no, let's not about, go there. <laughs> let's talk about the memory inside network switches. Okay. See, as we build faster and faster networks, and these days the lads down in the fiber lab are pushing out one terabit per second of capacity through the wire. But the way we actually do this is an incoming packet is assembled in a switch, do the checksum calculation, etc., and then you play it out on the next wire, on the next hop. And you've got to play that out at the same speed as the transmission. Now, that actually means these days you need awfully fast memory. So if we just hold there for a minute, back in the day when we constructed networks out of Ethernet, switches didn't exist and you spoke into a radio channel. I mean, that's what Ethernet was. It was a pipe of radio and you kind of put a bit of noise out there to make everyone else shut up and then you spoke and the front part of your frame on that network said, this is the station I'm talking to and they read the bits coming off, latched them in, did things with them, all nice and simple. It's just you talking. Switches, there's lots of ports on a switch. There's me, there's you, there might be 10, 15, 48, 64, 128 other devices connected to this switch. And they have to be able to talk to each other. Well, well yes, that's, that's the difference, if you will, between synchronized circuit switching, which is what drove the telephone industry, and asynchronous packet switching, which is what drives the data industry. So in the synchronized circuit switching mode, all the inputs are constant speed. And there's this entire process when you dialed a number of actually dynamically discovering a set of time slots end-to-end -end through the network that you reserved synchronous capacity on, which then charted the course of your speaks, your bits through the network. And the switches had no buffering. This was all real time. Didn't need a buffer because every Didn't, bit you get in, you send out. There's nowhere all, in the middle you've got to park it. It's all a big clock, tick, tick, tick. Now, in packet switching, you don't have that luxury. No reservations, no constrained sources. Everything happens in a chaotic mode. Every sender takes their data, chops it up into packets, and just sends it out. So this gives you some problems. And as you're gently suggesting here, the first one is a, a straight up multiplexing problem. I have four inputs and one output. I get four packets that arrive on each of those inputs at precisely the same time. Now, I can only send one packet at a time. So the other three 
have to sit there in memory and wait for me to get rid of the first packet before I'm ready to take the next, etc. So we might call it memory or we might call it a queue or we might call it a buffer. They're all just words for the same thing. Somewhere you can park the data because you can't do one in, one out for every bit you see on every one of your ports. Right. So this is the multiplexing problem. And if you don't have any memory to hold that, then things collapse very, very quickly. But if that's all you have, it's still not enough. And we enter into the wonderful world of protocols to actually go to the next step. You see, and I think this is a very old work done by Douglas Comer back in, geez, 1989, 1990. These were the very first switches for ATM, asynchronous transfer mode. It was the last invention of the telephone industry where they sort of defined the superbyte that instead of dealing with 8-bit bytes of data, they dealt with the surprisingly sized 48 bits of data payload per cell and then tacked onto it a uh, 7-byte ATM header. Very bizarre. But the things did go relatively quickly. And Doug decided to take a 155 meg ATM switch and push TCP through it. 155 megabits per second was it's meant to be uh, the theoretical speed. He got about three. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> yeah, what right. was that drop? <laughs> Where did all those other 152 megabits per second go? And the answer was quite simple, really. These ATM switches had no buffer space, no memory. Sell in, sell out. It was built for telephony. And so when you try and do data, which is bursty, and you've got to kind of absorb some of the bursts and then replay them from your memory. You don't have any memory. It just doesn't happen. So back when we were building networks out of point-to-point links that might be any technology you had available to you, but you had an explicit idea, I'm getting this packet to you, Jeff, over a network with intermediaries, and although it feels like I'm talking to you, I know in reality I'm passing it to Fred Bloggs in between, who passes it on to John Smith in between, who finally gets it to a machine close to you that gives it to you. Those point-to-point links, every single one of them, basically sat there saying, I am a bit of memory. I'm going to be able to hold some of your packets in buffer, in a queue, and deal with them so that I can deal with other things as well. And it was a bit loosey-goosey. We didn't really think in terms of just how much buffer and memory there was in the thing. But in this situation, I don't want to have intermediaries. I'm in an ATM network. I'm in ATM chips running ATM switch networks. They didn't build them with those buffers. Well, they didn't because... There's two ways of sharing a wire. So beware, listener, we're about to go down a small detour about how to share. One of the ways of sharing a common resource. So imagine a road, by the way, where every single car is the width of the road. So you can't put two cars together on the road at the same time. If you're going to share this road, you have to somehow queue them up. Now, One way of doing this is what we call time division multiplexing. So let's imagine you have red cars, blue cars, and green cars. On pulse number one, all the blue cars take up the road everywhere. On pulse number two, all the green cars. On pulse number three, all the blue and red cars. And then on pulse number four, I'm back to red. So it goes red, blue, green, red, blue, green, ad infinitum. And and so if everyone has the same clock, the network kind of changes color regularly and pushes each part of the traffic through in that time slot. And then when the next time slot comes along, you devote your network to the next one and the next one. And the telephone network was actually constructed on 8,000 pulses per second. And each pulse was part of one conversation. So I took a voice like you and I speaking, divided it up into 8,000 samples. Each sample was eight bits long, what a surprise. So my voice stream is 64 kilobits, but it's actually 8,000 8-bit pulses. And if I try and switch that through a larger switch that has megabits of capacity, one of my bytes goes through every 8,000th of a second, 
And then for the rest of the time, because it's a much bigger switch than 64 kilobits, other people's bytes go through. But every 8,000th of a second, it's my turn. So this is time division multiplexing. Been around since we digitized the voice system. Uh, I think almost, I wouldn't say 100 years, but certainly 70 or 80 years. It's not no effort multiplexing because oh, you do have to maintain it's, those clocks. There's work being done, but it's kind of simple. Well, time did a lot of the work for you, simple. Time did a lot of the work for you. You did have to have astonishingly accurate clocks. And so everyone needed to have similar atomic clocks and so on inside their networks. But you're letting time do the work, but horrendously inefficient because I can't go 65 kilobits a second. I can't go faster than that rate. And when I'm not saying anything and you're not saying anything and there is no traffic, I've still got that time slot. So it's not a very good use of this common resource. So it's in some ways simple, but in other ways, not very good. Now, computers don't have a real-time brain. They don't require a constant time base. While what we're doing right now with speech is synchronicity, computers just don't care. I've got some data, whack it on the wire. And we started to build packet switch networks. We started in the 60s. And these networks were actually totally different from the telephone network. If I have data, I'll send it. Now, how do you share when you've got that kind of regime? When I've got data, I'll send it. And one of the ways of doing this, and I suppose the best way I can explain it, is actually the thinking behind ATM as well. In time division multiplexing, the time of day determined which channel was being used. So slot number one, slot number two, and so on. So if you knew the time, you knew which party had control of the common resource at that instant in time. But what about if the packets themselves labelled their own virtual slot number? So I send out packets saying, well, I'm going to be slot number two, and you're going to be slot number three, et cetera, et cetera. So now I can kind of switch any way I like, and when the packet gets close to the end, you take all the, the packets whose slot number is two, and as long as there's not been too much reordering, you reassemble them. So as long as you can handle things quickly enough, and as long as you've got a mechanism to recognise this slot numbering, you can run a very fast technique of just chopping it up as you see things coming in with a bit of if but maybe about what happens at the end when you get close to everybody talking all the time. Right. And that was the secret behind that 1970s revolution we called Ethernet. Well, late 1970s, early 80s, really. Ethernet had no clock. It was just a common conductor. And everyone who was attached, every computer that was attached, when it had some data to send, it sent out what we called a preamble, which was sort of, <coughs> everyone stand back, I'm about to send, <coughs> which is sort of a meaningless thing, but it clears the wire. And if yeah. no one else says, don't send, when they hear that cough, hang on, I'm talking. If no one else sends, then I just talk. And I talk for up to 1,500 octets of data, 1,500 bytes, and then I stop and the wire goes quiet. There's kind of a few twists on that because we used to talk about this being listen before talk protocol. You have to listen before you do the <clears throat> because you have to check someone else isn't talking. Otherwise, you potentially jam their signal. But in general sense, that's what you do. You listen. As long as you hear some freedom, you preamble, <clears throat> book a slot, talk into it, and then shut up. 9.6 microseconds, as I recall. No, no, was it milliseconds? Who knows? Go look it up, the quiet time. So you needed a bit of idle time. And if two poke coughed at once, you kind of overrode each other and said that wasn't a real cough, waited for another idle period, and off you go. So the thing was, and, and sort of the essential attribute was, Ethernet had no clock. The Manchester encoding, the way the bits are represented on an Ethernet, kind of virtually provide, if not a clock in the sense you mean for statistical muxing, it provides a bit rate clock to help you work out what the rate of signalling is. We're going a long way down a diversion, dear listener, but let's go into there. The 
wasn't a random sequence of bits. It was indeed 101010. And what it was meant to do was to allow everyone who was listening, because everyone's a listener, to subtly adjust their clock to fat lock phase in on the received signal. On and that on that instance signal. of talking. And yeah. as long as everyone, it started at three megabits, which I think was one zero encoded, so it was six megahertz. As long as everyone was roughly running at the same rate, they could adjust to that. And that you'd listen, then your clock is now in sync with the data. You then listen for up to 1500 octets. And then when the line goes quiet, you stop your clock. So unlike the telephone world, which needed an accurate clock forever, in Ethernet, you need an accurate clock for a few thousandths of a second, and then it's all over and you restart the clock. So you actually are on cheap clocks that aren't stable over a long time. They're just stable over a short amount of time. Hence why Ethernet was so cheap and so popular. So you need to be in a context where talking about speeds between computers with a mega in front of it was earth-shatteringly fast because this was a massive increment in visible speed between machines for provision of data services. Getting three megabits and then ultimately 10 megabits was phenomenal. But hidden inside this, Jeff, is a little moment of risk here. First of all, there's that mandatory quiet moment that has to exist. You've got to have some quiet time to listen to see if anyone else is talking. And second of all, if you do wind up in a world where two people talk and they randomly back off, you kind of increase the amount of time that the network can't be used. And so how much of the network can be used became a little bit of an issue when this started to get full in inverted commas. Yes, there was a whole bunch of papers around whether it filled efficiently or filled inefficiently. The inventors of Token Ring, which were originally the good folk of the University of Cambridge, asserted that their ring-based technology was astonishingly efficient and Ethernet was just a rabble. But that was a UK perspective. Over in Silicon Valley, in the august hallways of Xerox and Digital and 3Com, the answer was, this thing fills like a hash table. It can be astonishingly efficient, but it's not as it's guaranteed. It's just the back-off algorithms work astonishingly well. You see, part of this timing, and this was the last of the mechanisms where the characteristics of a local cable dictated some of the parameters in the protocol. Ethernet was three 500-metre stretches of coaxial cable, as I recall. And so you used to get cable that actually had the wavelength <laughs> printed on it so no. that you could put the taps in the optimal place <laughs> to align with the best signal strength. It was very funny was technology. very funny. But this idle time was subtly calculated that if you built your Ethernet as long as the specs allowed, then the idle time is actually the amount of time it takes for a signal to propagate from one extreme end to the other. So if you waited for that magic time, anyone who'd coughed right at the other end of the cable, (coughs) you'd still hear it because you're waiting for an idle time, which is just slightly longer than that time. So all of Ethernet was sort of built around, they can't be too big, It's everyone takes up all the wire. It doesn't share. When the cough works, you own it. You are sending for everyone. Everyone can hear you and the listener picks it up. So there's also this quality that with a fixed maximum size of element on this wire and only one on the wire at any point in time, everybody's Ethernet chipset only had to have a fixed amount of memory buffer to read these bits coming off the wire or to write them out. It wasn't a variable queuing problem down in that link. Ethernet chips were fairly cheap to make. They were astonishingly cheap to make in the entire system. What we called CSMACD, Collision Sense Multi-Access Carrier Detect, if you want to know the acronym expansion. Cheap, easy, but not that useful in the big wide area. Folk did try, and you applaud their persistence in trying to build 
continental-wide networks of Ethernet. And that was all the rage in the late 80s. And I sort of, oh, my God, it just doesn't work very well, does it? The answer was, well, it doesn't, but I don't have any alternative, you, know, you poor people. So we started to look at taking the packet model, those very same packets, oddly enough, and pushing them into a wider area where you have these now true switches and you connect them together with a simple point-to-point digital connection. So now I've got packets. They could even have been Ethernet packets originally being sent in a relay fashion from switch to switch. And the first thing I've got, as we've said already, is this multiplexing problem. If I've got a number of interfaces on my switch, if packets arrive in every single one and they're all going to the same output, I have to store the ones that would otherwise have collided. So I need a small amount of memory. But let's go back a little bit up the stack and look at the transport protocol that's trying to push this data. You see, it's, it is a bit like driving a car down the road. And let's say there's no speed limit sign posted. You don't know how fast to push your data. And in fact, you don't know how fast to drive because it depends on all the other cars on the road. So a transport protocol has exactly the same problem. How fast should you go? Now, oddly enough, if you think about this sort of large network of point-to-point links and switches with everyone sending packets all of the time, you kind of know what Nirvana is, even if you don't know how to get there. Because if you and I, having a single end-to-end conversation within this crowded room of conversations, manage to find a sweet spot where the network can carry out the volume of our flow, then as long as I push in one more packet of data at the same time as you take one out, then our load that we're impressing on the network is constant. Packet in, packet out. Now, we might be separated by thousands of kilometres and hundreds of switches. It makes no difference. If we find the sweet spot, we know how to maintain it. So we've got a problem of finding it, but once you've got it, you're in a good place until the conditions change. But if you've solved the problem of how to find the sweet spot, you just have to keep hunting for the sweet spot, even while you've got it, and you should be able to retune it to wherever the new sweet spot is. That's kind of it. Now, for that, we use a transport protocol. And the one that we've kind of locked into using is a protocol called the Transmission Control Protocol, TCP. And oddly enough, you know, most of the brilliance of the internet is not packet switching and datagrams. That's sort of, oh, yeah, (laughs) that's nothing. The true intelligence is actually in this rather remarkable flow control protocol. And the way at which it tries to uncover and sort of latch upon what it thinks is that sweet spot. So you could imagine a hypothetical network that had every possible bell and whistle built into the switch to tell you what the switch thought was going on, what the router thinks is going on. They could all be telling you in enormous detail, aha, I have assessed that your packet rate at the moment is this rate and I can inform you in the next five minute interval, I predict it will be this other rate. You could build a network that had masses of introspection, measurement and statements and reservations of all this data. But the thing is, we didn't do that. We didn't build a network with those behaviours. I don't think think we were smart enough. We certainly weren't rich enough. We know we truly didn't know how. So we instead went the ultra-cheap way. Every packet to a switch is a surprise. Oh, I wasn't expecting that. Oh, I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) How could you not be expecting it? I sent you a 1,000 before. (laughs) Every packet's a surprise. They're stateless. They have no memory in that sense. They're not trying to sort of allocate their resources. In a true datagram switching algorithm network, every packet is kind of unplanned for, and you do your best. And, And the corollary is... If you haven't got room, you haven't got space, you aren't ready, you just drop it because the computer at the other end will send it again. So with every packet a surprise, then 
There is no such planning. There's no such communication. You could go this fast. The computers at either end have no idea. They have to construct a model based on what they can see the dynamics of the system are, hunting for that sweet spot. So here's a very simple algorithm of how fast to drive down a road. Jump in the car, turn on the engine, and put your foot on the accelerator as far as it will go. When you crash, as you inevitably will, you know you were going too fast. (laughs) Buy another car. (laughs) Buy another car and try again. But oddly enough, and this is the bizarre bit, that's exactly what the TCP protocol does. That the way it tries to sense the right sending rate is to actually keep pushing at the network. So in the first tenth of a second, I sent three packets. Now, TCP is an acknowledgement protocol. So I'll send three packets in the first tenth of a second. I'll get back three acts. So one round trip time, tenth of a second between us, you know, there and back, I'll get back a message that says three is great. So I'll send four. And if I get back four acts the next time, it's okay, four's working. And I keep doing this, five, six, seven, eight, and I keep doing this until my engine cocks out. I can't go any faster, fine. But if I've got a really big engine and I can keep going faster, at some point, I'm sending too much data for the network to handle. And I won't get back the right number of acts. I'll get what we call packet loss. And at that point, when my ACK signal breaks down, I know that for whatever reason, I was sending too much data. You've driven past whatever is the sweet spot. Right. So I need to go back to under the sweet spot and try again. So I'm trying to oscillate around that sweet spot of just the right amount without actually knowing what it is. And so the way TCP did this is accelerate through it, wait till you get a disaster, packet loss, and then stop sending for a little while and then halve your sending rate, halve it. So it's not uncommon in computer science for people to first approximate solutions in dealing with things by saying double it, half it. That's what binary search is inside a tree structure, for instance, or a hash list or whatever. You do it by halves. Okay, so once you get a bit smarter, you could start to hypothesize, what if I did this? What if I did that? But the beauty of doing things by halves is it's incredibly simple to implement. Right. And that's exactly, I think, what happened. There was not much science of networking behind rate halving. But it certainly practically worked. And so we get this flow control algorithm called additive increase, multiplicative decrease, which kind of says this could be parameterized. But in actual fact, the way the algorithm actually worked, and I'm talking about classic TCP, named after cities in Nevada. So this one was uh, TCP Reno, says for every round trip time, you send one extra packet one segment each round trip time. So you accelerate gently, bit more, bit more, bit more. And as long as I get a coherent flow of acknowledgements, packets are leaving the network, packets are leaving the network, life is fine. I keep on pushing more into the network, right? When I get a loss, when the acknowledgement flow stops, when the acknowledgement flow says, whoops, Packet number 60, that was a bad packet. It didn't make it. I'm only acknowledging packet 61. You react by halving. In fact, you react by firstly by waiting for a bit and then halving your sending rate. So this is going to look kind of like a sawtooth kind of waveform, isn't it? Because it's it's a pattern of slow behavior in one direction, rapid in the other, and then back, slow, rapid, back, slow, rapid. It actually doesn't sound, Jeff, like it has any behavior that naturally takes it to much smaller oscillations close to that sweet spot. Well, in actual fact, let's let's imagine a network that had no buffer space at all. When I get to the point of going faster than the network will happen, I'll drop a packet immediately. So I'm going to oscillate in my sawtooth between full capacity 
and half capacity. And I'll actually only use the network to, in rough terms, a maximal efficiency of 75%. It's kind of like the root mean square thing. If you take the average yes. between the positions here, you're better than halfway, but you're nowhere near the top. You're three quarters of the way because you're rate halving. So you go between half and full, half and full. And it's a sawtooth, so it's actually a linear function. So you'll end up at about 0.75. Which is not bad. No, not good enough. But you could do better. Not good enough. Want to do better. And one of the observations is, what if I put buffers in all the switches, memory, and that when I'm like the multiplexing problem, when I'm busy, I'll just stuff the packet into local memory. And if I make that memory big enough, then during that interval when I would have said, oh, I didn't see that packet, it got dropped, I just hung on to it long enough that it does make it through and you keep on being at the high point in the sawtooth as long as that memory is big enough for those little moments when you had to chuck something away. Right. I want to oscillate between just a little under the right amount and go up to the larger amount. When I rate half, I jump under it again. I want to oscillate around that mark so the average sending rate is 100%, which is the trick. And the way we do this for a single flow is that if the amount of buffer space equals what we call the delay bandwidth product of the next hop. The delay bandwidth product so that's the combination of... If the of amount of buffer equals the amount of data contained in that next link. So if I can send, if the link can hold four packets of data, then I need a buffer of four packets. Okay. So what I want to do is I start sending data and I get to the point where I'm sending faster than the link capacity. And so the next packet that rolls in, I put it in the buffer and wait, you know, it has to wait. I can end up actually sending at twice that link capacity. And at that point, the buffer will overflow. Oops, too fast. I'll rate halve. But when I rate halve, I rate halve it just below the link capacity, not half the link capacity. Because the buffer has magically become part of your idea right. of how much data you can have. And the trick is I have to wait for the buffer to drain before I start sending in again, which is all part of the algorithm in Reno. So we go from the first stage, I have to do this as a sawtooth, first minute I get a loss, I half myself down. We've now added one extra component. There is some buffering built in on the link that buffering has the effect that I can push that little bit higher. So when I halve it, I'm actually back down closer to where the link should be. And if I carry on at that speed, I'm using all of the link. I'm using all of the link. So I'm 100% efficient, Nirvana. And what I'm actually doing with my sawtooth is driving into the network buffers, into the memory. It's now the size of the memory that determines how high you go compared to link speed. You can't go faster than the link in reality, but your limit isn't the link speed, it's the buffer. Right. The evilness in this model is an idle link. So at all points, there's either stuff in the buffer to drive the link or I'm sending packets, but I don't want the link to be inefficient. I want to drive it full. And so you sort of get this conspiracy between the protocol, which is a doubling, halving rate protocol, and the switch, which is provisioned with memory equal to the size of the link that it's driving, right? Now, this memory has to be able to handle reading and writing at the link speed. You can't just throw memory that's whatever memory you feel like at it. You need it to be responsive at the rate the link demands. That's a bit of an oops moment because memory speed hasn't increased for about 20 odd years now. So to make fast memory, you've got to trick up with parallelism because memory is But if we're, if we're back in the past when TCP Reno's being built, oh, yeah. link speed and memory speed was kind of in a nice relationship. Things were actually pretty good. Right, but let's go to today's world. I've just put in the latest and greatest one terabit per second. Oops, 
and I've got an R around trip time of probably an interocean gap, an intercontinental link of, let's say, 100 milliseconds of round trip time, then I need to have a buffer of 12.5 gigs of data because that's how much data is sitting there on that wire at one terabit per second for 100 milliseconds. That's a lot of memory, Insanely big. And don't forget, this is memory that can drain at one terabit per second. So we're not talking your your standard chips from the standard memory vendor. You're talking DDR4 banks, you know, every trick in the book. This is not good. So oddly enough, though, in this sort of evolving understanding of the relationship between flow control algorithms and how much memory in a router, the industry went through a little bit of oscillation. It was pointed out that they were under, under provisioning routers. We were spending all this money on comms and the routers weren't able to drive it at wire speed. Now I'm talking about the times when a megabit per second was novel. So this is the CPU, the backplane speed, the investment in the router as an ultra-fast computer doing the work to decide how to write things in and out of interfaces and buffers. Right. And so there was a lot of pressure on the industry to put more memory in. And of course, you know, the silicon industry being what it is, it did overachieve and buffers became humongous for a while. Right. But at the same time, and, and I'm talking around sort of the year 2004 or so, there was sort of a reevaluation of this entire rule of thumb because like all rules of thumb, it was a mythology. There's not a single flow. There's a myriad of flows. And the bigger the network, the bigger the number of flows, the bigger the number of variations in round trip time. And they're all sharing this memory buffer space. They're all competing for use of this space as a bandwidth delay product. It's a bit chaotic, isn't it? It's all desynchronized and chaotic. And their experimental finding, and I stress experimental, was that you could divide that amount of memory by the square root of the number of simultaneous flows. So our one terabit over a tenth of a second, 100 milliseconds, our one terabit router, which would buy the bandwidth delay product and say, you need 12.5 gigabytes of data, gigabits, sorry. If you had 100,000 flows, which is not that much, the memory by the square root, divide by the square root, is down to 40 megs. 40 megabyte bits of data. But that's essentially empirical to experimental observation. Ah, but it's really important. So let's go to the next step in chip design. Because I can have two blocks of memory in my switching chip, on chip and off chip. If I put on the same chip die a bunch of memory, it's really fast. Well, it's at the speed you latch that chip to do things inside the chip. There's no bus that you have to contend with. There's no communication chip to chip. It's all inside the interior logic. Right. And I can put these days, state of the art, is around 100 megabytes or so of really fast memory can be put on the same chip as the switching fabric. If I want more, I have to put it on a bus, off chip, IO logic, da-da-da-da-da-da things get a little bit slower and certainly more expensive. And there's this compromise in design between large buffers become really hard if I want very high speed. If I'm trying to provision them on, it's got to be the delay bandwidth. And so we've been, I suppose, debating with ourselves as to how much memory should be in the network. Because if we can convince ourselves that the Stanford folk were right, not just in experiment, but for right in reality, that the bigger the network and the bigger the number of simultaneous flows, oddly enough, the amount of memory does not rise in proportion. It's divided by the square root of the number of flows flowing across it. Then you can actually make really fast packet switches with not a lot of memory and therefore make them a whole lot cheaper. So... There's a whole bunch of sort of considerations behind this argument, right? 
it sounds like there's an elephant in the room here, which is the decision around how do you know that you've reached too much? That's packet loss. What do you do? You rate drop. And that the design imperative was driving to you drive until you crash and then you drop by half. There are opportunities to make different decisions. You could hold history of your experience across that link. You could have knowledge that the last time you did this, your good spot was at a certain level. And instead of driving high, you could drive to that level. And instead of dropping by halves and being slow, you could drop by some other number and perhaps be quicker to try and go back. So I'm not saying there's no story here about memory and buffers, but it feels like there's a bit of a story. Could we do a better job in how the endpoints assess what they think they should do? Right, because TCP is a self-clocking algorithm. It clocks on acts. So every time I send a data packet, some on the other end, the other end sends back an act, and that tells me that data arrived, send more. And so it sort of works off at clocking. And the problem with packet loss is a loss of signal. It's catastrophic. I now don't know what's going on. I'm all at sea. And if I have to restart the connection, I can't start it at full throttle. I have no idea what full throttle means anymore because I've just had packet loss. Obviously, I was sending too fast. And so the conservative approach to conserve the network and conserve coherency says drop off a lot. But the underlying issue is maybe packet loss is the wrong signal. We don't drive our cars to crash and then say, oh, that was too fast. Let's repair it and try again. We actually try and drive a bit more conservatively and sort of drive just to the point of possibly having an accident and then backing off. We want to drive to the network to a different point. And that different point is what? Ah. This is an interesting conversation because the most efficient network is one that doesn't have queues but is full because now it's as fast as you can possibly make it. If you tried to push more data in, it would only end up in a queue. So the latency time end-to-end is optimised when the network is full, but when it's over full, when you're pushing a bit higher, Oddly enough, the latency goes increases, the efficiency goes down because the network can't deliver it. It's just going to sit in a queue. So what you want to avoid is not packet drop. That's a gross signal. You want to avoid queuing. Now, this is the kind of realisation that's been around for some time. And there was an early effort. I'm trying to remember which lake in Nevada it was named after. I don't think it really matters which was delay-based. And the idea was that you slavishly measured the amount of round-trip time of each packet you sent to its corresponding hack. And as soon as that started to stretch out, as soon as the delay between sending acknowledgement started to increase, you immediately pulled your sending rate back. The problem was that this is an astonishingly poor protocol. Because if you're in competition with all the other TCPs out there, and you are, everyone else is going to packet loss, you're going to die. No throughput whatsoever, so a bad idea. But this did prompt a different way of thinking about this, and this was actually instantiated in a TCP flow control algorithm called BBR, championed by Google, and I think Matt Mathis and Van Jacobson had a lot to do with it. And this is a kind of interesting approach, and it's stress testing. So let's assume, just for the moment, that I have kind of a rough idea of the sustainable network capacity without queues forming, 100 megabits per second. And instead of slavishly timing every packet to look for the onset of queuing, I just push at that rate six-eighths of the time. So more than half the time, I just push at that rate. You do have to have some exterior prior knowledge to guide you. but well, having, let's say I'm there. But that's a good place to be. As long as you've got a model, why don't you target it? But don't target it all the time irrespective. Target it for some So number. I target it blind and I target it just a little more than half the time. 
And for the next round trip time, I do a stress test and I increase my sending rate, not by a bit, but by a full 25%, by a quarter. So if I was sending at 100 megabits per second, for the next round trip time, I'm going to send at 125 megabits per second. And I'd look very, very hard at the delay, at the latency. Now, if I had the right decision originally, then immediately when I oversend, the latency will go up because all that extra 25 megabits per second is going to end up in queues. Going into buffer. Yeah. Right? And and so the entire system is going to get a little bit sluggish. Now, for the next round trip time, I drop my sending rate by exactly the same amount for exactly the same time. Which means you've dropped back to your prior measure of what was an effective... No, I dropped below it. I dropped 25% low to let the queues drain. I've got to be nice to everyone else. So if I send at 75 megabits per second for a round trip time, all that stuff that I land and put in the queue will drain out. Right, but you didn't rate half, you dropped 25, which means you're still sitting at a finer model around what you believe is the right place to be. And if I had made the right decision to start with, then it's great because on average, there is no queuing and I'm running the network at exactly the rate that it can sustain. Now, let's say that I increase my rate by 25% and nothing happens to the latency. Well, great, fantastic. That becomes the new Lift target my rate. Estimate by 20, <laughs> Lift that rate and do it again and keep on doing. So what if I'm oversending? Well, what you actually find is that as you lift by 25%, things get horrible. Packet loss increases as well as there's latency. At that point, you back off by more than 25% because obviously you're going too fast. So this algorithm effectively by stress testing one eighth of the time achieves the same result as things like Reno in theory achieves an optimal loading of the network, but does not run with sort of these bellows like of buffers, these buffers that constantly expand and contract. Because what I'm doing now is actually relying on the latency and the formation of the queues to drive my flow into the sweet spot. So you have one extra piece of information where previously all you had was packet loss in the acknowledgement. You now have a measurement of your round trip time delay component you've brought to the table. Two things are available to measure against and you're preferencing the delay as the signal this isn't working because what delay is telling you is buffers are now being consumed. And given in the prior conversation, we said when you have buffers in a link, you're actually driving to the amount of buffers available more than the link speed. This is detecting the buffer. This is measuring behavior in the buffer. And the other thing about BBR, which is kind of interesting, is of course, when we start to use radio systems, mobile internet, you get radio loss not congestion loss. So when you lose a packet, it's a very, very confusing signal. Was that due to poor radio reception or due to the fact that I'm going too fast? So radio here is a technology that essentially means mobile cell phones or Starlink satellites or free air mechanisms. It's the thing that a bird can fly through your signal. It's nothing to do with actual buffers or end-to-end problems. Right. It's kind of the random noise increases in radio systems. And what you don't want is to back off your sending rate every time there's a glitch. Whereas BBR kind of goes, yeah, right. I'm not loss sensitive in my sending rate. I'm delay sensitive more than loss sensitive. And so, yes, you repair lost packets, but that doesn't affect your estimate of the available path capacity. So. At this point, if I happen to be blessed with a computer that implements this TCP window adjustment technique, I'm feeling pretty good. But if the guy next to me is running on an older computer that still does a cut-it-by-half model and we're both sharing elements of the same path, isn't there a bit of a risk of winners and losers here, Jeff? Well, don't forget, this is a sending protocol, not a receiving protocol. So all of the clients out there, including my poor little mobile device, aren't doing a thing other than hacking every packet. Same as normal. 
over in the data center, where the stuff is coming from is where the algorithm lies. And so this is the sender controlling the way it governs its flow rate. And yes, you are right. If some senders are using a different algorithm, whether it's Reno, Akamai spent some money and bought an algorithm called FAST, F-A-S-T. Google are heading over to use BBR. I'm not sure what Cloudflare and Fastly are using, but you know they've all got their favorite protocols. And yes, George, it's a war out there. And it really is a war for, if you will, grabbing bandwidth without being too antisocial. Too antisocial and everyone gangs up and kills you. Being too polite, you're giving away all the bandwidth to everyone else. So you need a bit of assertion, a bit of elbow room, but you don't need to run exactly the same protocol as everyone else is what we're finding. And so this algorithm, BBR, actually is, I suppose, cheaper for everyone because you're not actually doing a huge amount of network provisioning of buffers. You've removed one component of cost in the hardware between you and the endpoint. Everybody is able to use less memory. Right, and all is good. But there is a different approach that's been kicking around in the research community for, geez, at least 10 years, which tries to do the same thing, but in a different way. And that's called the ECN bits. So again, same kind of problem. I don't want to rely on packet loss as an indication I'm going too fast. But what is fast? Well, going too fast is queues are forming. How do you know queues are forming? Well, there's two things. One, the latency increases, BBR. But secondly, the switch knows that the queues are forming because it's putting the packets in the queue because my link is full. What if that switch had a clear space in the IP protocol header, bit offset 21 or something, don't take my word for it, go look it up, called the ECN experience bit. And that if my queues are starting to form, I mark that bit in the packet I'm forwarding. So it might only be one bit, and there might be many people along the path who potentially would say, well, I'm having a bad hair day. I think I need to set this bit. If it's already set, fine, someone else is having You're a bad day. <laughs> and if the bit isn't set, well, you are having a bad hair day, so you can right. set it. The fact that there's only one bit, but there's many potential points along the path that might need to set it kind of doesn't matter, does it? Well, it was a bit of a research topic as to how many bits you wanted and, you know, whether the number is one or zero or a number of bits and so on. But ultimately, most of the research papers concluded that one bit is enough. If what you're trying to say, because the way this works is I'm sending it to the receiver. Now, here, the receiver has some work to do. Unlike BBR, the receiver's got to do something. Uh, All it's got to do is pretty simple. Reflect that bit in the ACK. So the ACK says, you know that packet of data you sent me? It experienced congestion, and I'm going to set the same bit on the ACK packet to tell you it. Now, what the sender does is whenever it gets an ACK that has this bit set, it reacts as if it was a loss-styled event. As if. Because it's obviously pushing into a forming queue, and you're going too fast. So... If I get a marked packet that says, whoops, buddy, you're sending into a queue, you should back off. You're actually doing what the loss algorithms do and what BBR does, but on a direct signal from the network itself, the active elements in the network saying, oops, too fast. But it kind of sounds agnostic to whether you're using BBR or any other higher protocol. All of them could reflect on an ECN bit. And that was the beauty, if you will, of ECN, that the algorithms, whether it was TCP, Reno, Tahoe, you know, name your favorite city, Nevada, whatever, who cares? They could all react to an ECN experienced bit in the same way. You need to interpret this bit as going, the network is clogging up. You're part of the problem because your packet was part of the queue with information. Back off, buddy, and react accordingly, which was certainly, I'm developing a new super protocol. It was applicable to all protocols. So that part was kind of good. 
The issues are, of course, every client needs to reflect that bit, which doing things across the internet these days, it's a bit of a stretch. But the other thing too, which is even more difficult in some ways, is every switch. In the halcyon days of everyone does this and life is wonderful, every switch needs to do it. That will never happen. So in a partial adoption world, that signal will come at times, but you'll have congestion without the signal if the switch isn't sort of programmed to mark that bit. So this is a technology that propagates at the capital replacement cost of network infrastructure and its marginal benefit for deployment along your paths. Obviously, if your primary congestion point is close to you, and if that happens to get an upgrade to do it, you get a noticeable improvement. But for any congestion that's happening further down the pipe, there's no benefit. Well, not further down the pipe, George, different paths. As long as it's happening on your path or the bottleneck isn't where you're marking ECN, yes. So it has its proponents and Apple, oddly enough, is firmly behind this with its initiative called L4S, low latency, some other L words, and I think S for stability (laughs) makes no difference, L4S. And there's kind of pushing this model that says, if we in our end devices reflect the ECN bits, And if the networks do their part, then all the senders can actually react to these ECN bits long before standard queues start to form. And we can get rid of the buffer bloating, the queuing problem by having the networks be a little bit more active in marking those packets as saying queue information. Simpler? Yeah, probably simpler. Does everyone have to do some work? Well, yes, it's not a piecemeal thing. It relies on a bunch of folk doing work. But it's an interesting approach to, to, oddly enough, to get to the same point, to react to incipient congestion without blowing up the network with packet loss, without blowing up the signal in the first place. It's a strange world where, in most endeavours with a computer, people's drive is more cores, more CPU clock speed, more cooling, more memory. And memory goes DDR memory, DDR4 memory, DDR5 memory, Optane memory, all these extra super double plus good giant memories for computing. Down in the network layer, people are actually saying, "Mm, maybe less is better. Well, yes, because as we said before, the lowest latency possible on a packet switch path between me and you is where memory is not involved where my packet, as soon as it hits the switch, is sent immediately to an outbound interface and continues on its merry way. That's Nirvana. And if I can get to that point without any memory buffering in flight, that's the fastest transmission through the network, and I'm getting, if you will, the best responsiveness. This is all brilliant. If I'm encountering a gigabyte buffer, doesn't matter even if it's speed of memory. If I'm going to wait there for this gigabyte to drain through and it becomes my turn, continents have shifted their location on the planet Earth. You know, things have happened. No one's going to live that long. And so big buffers was kind of a bad thing to happen in the network. But I think we kind of crawled there unconsciously. But once we got there, I think there's this dawning realisation that this is not the place we'd really want to be. It sounds like it's going to be a while yet before the network stabilizes on a single model. And it doesn't sound to me like ECN is bad, but it has a deployment timeline. And the deployment rate of technology like BBR, to some extent, depends on the abilities of people to upgrade their systems. So Apple is interesting. They have a really ferociously fast update cycle. If they made a decision, they would put BBR and ECN into their end devices. It's visible in every Apple device in a short period of time. BBR doesn't need to be on an end device. BBR is server-side technology. It's just playing with the sending rates. The receiver does nothing. The receiver just acts every packet. So the issue is, over in the server world, what's the predominant ecosystem of delivering content? Now, that's a loaded question because there's kind of a two-part answer. 
there's an awful lot of Microsoft-based server platforms and an awful, awful, awful lot of Linux, Unix-style platforms. And so the switch to BBR can be done piecemeal, can be done inside Linux platforms, and is actually just a server decision. No one else needs to participate in this. And so in some ways, were I to be a betting man, and I'm not, um, I would actually put money behind the pretty rapid adoption of BBR. And I suppose the next question is, has that already happened? And you notice some of the announcements from from some cloud providers going, wow, this works. And, And so I suspect that it's already well underway. And the problem with BBR is despite BBR version two, which was meant to be a little bit more family friendly to the other TCPs, if your aim is to be a little bit more aggressive, put your elbows a bit wider, push the others a little bit harder, yeah, right, why be nice or nicer than you need to be? I suspect that the original BBR is actually out there a lot more than than others simply because it kind of works. And it kind of works for network operators too because it has minimal, minimal demands on network buffers. The stuff runs at full pace. It pushes the networks at that point but doesn't push them too hard. It doesn't push the networks into collapse. It just pushes them to the point where they're spending their time switching packets, not being idle. Where ECN may be net beneficial, but it's more likely to be deployed at the rate of network upgrades, which is a slightly more expensive exercise. You need the concert master to tell the vendors to put it in their router code. You need to put it in the end systems to reflect the ECN bit, et cetera, et cetera. You need a lot of industry orchestration. And the internet is not an orchestrated network. It's just a marketplace. And if ECN kind of works for everyone, it gets done. If there are folk who say, no, it doesn't get done, look at V6, right? So BBR being, I'm doing this and I can do this and no one else needs to, if you will, accept my decision. It's their their decision. I can do this independently of everyone else. I'll kind of do it. Hmm. And that's why BBR, I think, in this sort of ecosystem of technologies is certainly in a more favoured position. But I actually think it's also a fascinating evolution of understanding about how much we know truly about what we thought was pretty simple. We thought TCP, oh, yes, well, we did it in the, you know, 1970s. Yeah, we know all about this. Feedback control loops, da-da-da, you know, there. And all of a sudden, you know, years later, it's kind of not really. After all of these research papers, after all of this effort, there's still a whole lot more to sort of think about as to how to make these systems work better. BBR's approach of taking continuous monitoring off and replacing it with regular and and quite severe bursts of stress actually seems to work better that those periodic stress tests of quite high intensity give you a better picture of the network's capability than one of continuous monitoring is yet one of these new answers. And so if any sort of young student is out there going, flow control, solve problem, we don't need to know more about this, the answer is I think you're probably a bit off being here. Yeah, there's plenty of work to do down in the weeds (laughs) in TCP. There's plenty of work to do. And I think absolutely fascinating work about how to alter already a massive system and drive it into new areas of efficiency, which we never guessed was possible. Jeff, that was absolutely fascinating. I think that's really interesting to understand the change in the way TCP works, this protocol that we all depend on, and to have this new view of it emerging and going into deployment, I think it's great. So do I. Endlessly fascinating. Thank you, and thanks to the listeners for hanging in there. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit 
is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time,